Psalm chapter 85, verse 6. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And then we'll turn over to Luke, or rather Ephesians chapter 4 and read the verse, first seven verses. Verse 6. Let's read it together, can we? Here we go. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to read the first seven verses for us there. Now, before I read these, let me just make this point. This was written to a church. Oftentimes we read through uh, the Bible and we forget the audience. This audience is a local New Testament church. Paul wrote this letter to the church of Ephesus, and a leader in the church of Ephesus, probably John, stood up and read this in its entirety to the church. If it wasn't John, John was one of the pastors. It would have been someone who is in charge of the church or the leader of the church there. And so remembering that this was written to a local church, let's uh, read the first seven verses there. Uh, Paul is speaking. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of your vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering." Forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Notice the unity highlighted uh, from the beginning of the chapter down through verse 6. Look at verse 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascendeth up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, uh, what it, what, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descendeth is the same also that ascendeth up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Look down at verse number 31 of the same chapter. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from uh, be put away from you with all malice. Let's read verse 32 together, can we? And be ye kind one to another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The title of the sermon this afternoon is this, Wilt Thou Not Revive Us Again? Wilt Thou Not Revive Us Again? Why do Baptist Church? I don't think we're a dead church. I've seen dead churches. I've been in dead churches. I think there's a lot of exciting things happening here. Amen? But I'd hate for us to die. It's very easy for this church to die. Satan wants to kill this church. I believe we're a church that's going and growing with a gospel message. But I believe we can be better. I believe we can do more for the work of Christ. And so we're going to look at this topic of reviving the church. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at uh, Ephesians 4 and a couple of other passages this afternoon, help us, Lord, to hit a reset button where ones needed to be hit. There's corporate revival, but Lord, corporate revival only happens when a whole bunch of people decide to have personal revival. 
And Lord, would you revive my heart? Would you bring me to a place of of, uh, spiritual growth that I've never seen? And Lord, may that be all of our prayers. Help the Word of God to speak to our hearts this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The United States of America was founded on July 4th, 1776, when some brave men signed a Declaration of Independence, cutting ties with the throne in Great Britain. What happened next? War. War happened next. In fact, from that date forward, our great country would participate in several wars. I did a search this week, and I knew most of these, but I did a search this week of all of the wars that America has officially Fought in. There's others that we have been unofficially involved in, but officially involved in. There was the Revolutionary War. There was the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the Spanish-American War. There was World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, the Gulf War, or also known as Gulf War I, and then War in Afghanistan, or Gulf War II. In all of these wars, there were estimated to be 639,000 soldiers who lost their lives fighting to defend our nation's freedom. Let me read that number again. 639,000 American men and women have died in battle in those wars defending our country. I left out a war. Does anyone know which war I skipped? Skipped the Civil War. The Civil War is the ugliest war America has ever fought. Brother shot at brother. American killed American. The Union would lose 360,000 soldiers to death. The Confederate would lose an additional 260,000 soldiers. All told, every one of these men and women, mostly men who died... Were Americans. Every last one of them. In total, there were 620,000 soldiers who would die in the Civil War. Now, in all of our other wars combined, 639,000 soldiers have been killed. In the Civil War alone, 620,000 soldiers were killed. When a soldier dies fighting a known enemy, it's lauded, it's praised, but it's also expected. Those boys who died on Normandy Beach in France, it's tragic. But those men are held high, they're lauded, they're praised, because they died fighting evil and defending freedom. They died helping France get their liberty back and liberating Europe and keeping the war over there so that Hitler never got his war over here. However, when a brother shoots and kills a brother, it's tragic. The only word to describe a death amongst friends is tragic. What is the fastest way to take down a country? Say America wanted to take down its enemy. The fastest way to take down a country is to get them to fight each other. It's the fastest way to do it. If you can get people within a country to have an ideological difference that drives them to war, well, they're busy tearing themselves down. They don't have, we don't have to go over there and fire a single shot. 
Is it really any different for Christians within a church? God did not put us here to attack and belittle and destroy each other. He put us here to attack Satan in the gates of hell. Listen to me this afternoon. We must keep our focus. We must remind ourselves who the enemy is. We must lock arms with each other and attack that enemy. We may not always like each other. We may occasionally offend and hurt each other. No, we will occasionally offend and hurt each other. But at the end of the day, we must band together and lock our sights on Satan and the evil that he is leading. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave the early church leaders a great, and I do mean great, commission. He laid out the mission statement for the church and each Christian that makes up the church. This afternoon, I'd like for us to take uh, a close look at the church. I'd like us to look closely at how we can maximize our effort to accomplish this great charge that the Lord has entrusted us. Let's look carefully at four very important thoughts about this topic of wilt thou not revive us again. Number one, point number one of the message is this, the reason for the church. The reason for the church. Let me give you an A, B, C, and a D uh, here. Four subpoints on what the reason of the church, the reason for the church. Letter A. Notice to evangelize the lost. To evangelize the lost. Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus is speaking with Peter. By the way, his name wasn't Peter until Jesus surnamed him Peter. His name was Simon, and Jesus named him Peter or Petros, which means little pebble. And he says, "Thou art Petros, little pebble." And upon this rock. He points to himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why did God say that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Can I tell you this uh, afternoon, there aren't, there, there is not a gate around hell uh, to keep people from getting in. The gate that's around hell is there to keep people from climbing out. The people that are in hell are, uh, are, are miserable, they're, uh, they're tormented, they're sad, they're in pain, and they want out. The gate that's around hell is there to keep people trapped in there and the church is the one to be on the offensive. We're to go after each and every one that will listen to us. We're to tell them that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. We're to tell them that Jesus loves them. We're to tell them that there's hope in a hopeless world. If there's one thing I have learned in 35 years of life and in in three plus years of being a senior pastor is that there's a lot of folks out there who don't have any hope. They're hurting. They're living in sin, and 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 they're they're saddened. They're in pain, and uh, they're they're drug ridden, and uh, they've been betrayed in relationships. They don't know uh, what to do. And we have the greatest news in the whole world that Jesus saves, and God has commissioned the church to evangelize the lost. Let her be to encourage the weary. To encourage the weary. Hold your place in Ephesians four. Turn over to Luke uh, chapter four. Luke chapter four and verse number sixteen. Jesus here is beginning. His earthly ministry. He's just gotten through being tempted of the devil. He walks uh, into a synagogue or a place of worship 
And in, uh, in, in Nazareth, where he was born and raised, look at verse 16 of Luke 4. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Notice here what the, the, the declaration of Christ, the author and founder of our church. Look what he says that he was sent to do. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You know, one of the reasons why I love coming to church is this is a place where I can encourage others and I can be encouraged by others. Uh, What would it be if, if you just dropped out of church and you didn't have a church family to pick you up when you were down? What would it be if, if you uh, didn't have others to come around you and you were struggling in carnality and you were struggling with sin or you had a, a, an error in your life to have a brother gently come around or a sister gently come around and put their arm around you and say, I love you. I'm praying for you. I'm not here to judge you, but this is the uh, error in your life and you, you need to get this picked up and put back uh, together. And I want to walk this journey with you to help you. Church is a place of encouragement. How many of you here have ever showed up to church on a Sunday or a Wednesday feeling like the world has just kicked you in the mouth and you come in and sit on the pew and you, you hear the singing or you participate in the singing, you hear the preaching and you get up and you walk out and you say, I think I can make it just one more week to encourage the weary, the reason for the church. Let her see notice to edify the believer. To edify the believer. Turn over to, back over to Ephesians chapter 4 where we began and remember here that the Paul, Apostle Paul is addressing the church of Ephesus and I believe this is completely applicable to White Oak Baptist Church today in Stratford, Connecticut. Verse 16 of chapter 4 says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The Bible calls the church the body of Christ. Wow! The body of Christ. Now the body of Christ walked around this planet for three and a half years. Born as a virgin, uh, born from a virgin in Mary and, and grew up and matured and, and, and became an adult and then died on the cross and ascended to heaven. And then he created the church and he said, church, you are my body on earth. The body of Christ. The body of Christ. Now, he is, make no mistake about it, he is the head of White Oak Baptist Church. He is the head of the church. You know what the rest of us are? We're just functioning parts that make the body go. And you say, well, pastor, I don't know how important I am at the church. And all I think I am on the body of Christ at White Oak Baptist Church is a toe. Listen, you ever had your, your, your great big toenail ripped off? How important is your toenail? You say, well, no one ever sees me. No one ever knows. Are you praying for people in the church? Then you have a purpose in the church. Are you encouraging others in the church? 
Yesterday, one of the men in our church shared a testimony about how he had taken a few minutes on a Saturday at a bus kid's home to just stop and talk to a man who was laying on a couch and uh, clearly in a stupor from being drunk. And he, he knelt by the man and gave him a gospel track and, 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 and tried to witness to him and then prayed with him. And off he went. And um, I guess somewhere uh, that man had his phone number. And a few months later, the man called him and said, had you not stopped and shared a kind word with me, I was prepared to commit suicide uh, later on, just a few hours later. But now I've gotten up off the couch and I've gotten myself to church and I'm growing and I'm going. And that man thought, uh, it's a cold winter day and it's snowing outside and, and I don't know that what I'm doing is making any difference and should I be doing this? And listen, a word fitly spoken, Proverbs tells us, is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. Why is it that we come to church? Well, sometimes we come to church to edify others. Sometimes we come to church because we need to be edified. The reasons for the church. Evangelize the lost, encourage the weary, edify the believer. Letter D, to equip the disciple. To equip the disciple. Turn over to Acts chapter number 11 and verse number 26. Acts 11 and verse number 26. I'll begin reading. It says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year uh, they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. This church in Antioch had developed. It was in Gentile land. The church was a diverse church. By the way, one of the signs of a healthy church is diversity. Diversity. What do I mean by diversity? I mean diversity in age. Listen, we have a, we ought to have a, a nursery filled with babies and, uh, we ought to have people in the senior saints ministry that love the Lord and everywhere in between. Praise the Lord. We have age diversity at our church. People, no matter your age, you feel like you can come here and fit in. I also mean color diversity. All, not matter the color of your skin. Uh, uh, God loves us all the same, whether you're, uh, pink like I am or you're brown or you're black or you're yellow or whatever color you happen to be. Color of skin does not matter with God. He loves loves all souls the same. And listen, don't you ever treat somebody different because of the color of their skin. You're no better than they are. And if you think that you are, you have a problem, a spiritual problem that you need to get ironed out with the Lord. Sign of a church is that it's diverse. Church of Antioch was a diverse church and they began to come and grow under the leadership of the Lord. They were being equipped with how to live and how to grow. And people outside of the church looked at those in the church and said, something is going on at church. They're being made disciples. The reason for the church. Our church ought to evangelize the lost. I believe we do that. Our church ought to encourage the weary. I believe this is a place where that happens. We ought to edify the believers. By the way, the word edify is only found 13 times in the Bible. And all 13 times it's found in books that deal with the church. Letter D to equip the disciples. Number two this morning. Number one, we looked at the reason for the church. Number two, notice the resistance against the church. The resistance against the church. Can I tell you that there are a lot of churches that are failing today? A lot of churches that are failing today. And some of you just ate, and your bellies are full, and you're tired. And so do your best to stay awake, all right? You've got to stand up and shake yourself real good, all right? I'm, uh, I'm tired, too. So if I fall asleep, just throw something at me, all right? Uh, but try to stay engaged here. The resistance against the church. Can I tell you that in today's day, 2019, it is rare to find a gospel-preaching church that's growing? It's rare. White Oak Baptist Church is an anomaly. And it has been one for 39 plus years. 
Many of you have been here so long that you take for granted what we have here. I hope you're listening. Having a church where, and by the way, we're far from perfect. I'll get get more into that in a moment. We're far, far from perfect. We're a bunch of sinners making up a church body, and we're not going to be perfect until we get to heaven. There are things about me that aren't perfect. There are things about you that aren't perfect. And we could, we could stand here and we could all list each other's imperfections and shortcomings. And we could be here for the next two weeks, getting through all of them. But what we have here is special. Special. You walk around, or rather you go to some of the other churches in the area. Something's off with a lot of them. Most of those churches, their doctrine is off. Then we have other churches that are trying to rock and roll people into the building. They're more concerned with looking like the world instead of reaching the world. To have what we have here is special. And I'm going to tell you right now, we are on Satan's map. Because we're one of only a few lighthouses of beacons of truth in southern Connecticut. Satan hates this. And Satan would do anything he can to take this down, take this apart. And my friend, this all begins with each and every one of us getting on our knees and praying and asking God to maintain and grow what we have here. Letter A, notice about resistance against the church. Notice sin and selfishness. Sin and selfishness. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Please try to engage. Some of this gets a little wordy, but try your best to understand it. Focus on purpose as we read. Verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted... By that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. Verse 17, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth not walk as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so, be that ye have heard Him, and have been taught by Him, and the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt uh, according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. What's he saying here? He's saying, do not let sin ruin your church. Do not let your selfish personal agendas ruin your church. Remember, this was written to a church and it's still applicable to ours today. I talked about pride this morning in the early service, how that the temple was filled with scribes and Pharisees. These are people who are leading worship in the temple and and running through the ceremonial sacrifices. And we looked at how they were so lifted up with pride, they threw the woman who was caught in adultery in front of Jesus with stones in their hand and ready to kill her. And God looked at them and said, okay, you buzzards. Whoever of you doesn't have any sin, you throw the first stone. 
They were lifted up in pride. They turned around and walked away. Turn around and walked away. You say, well, surely they learned their lesson. Well, clearly not, because just a few chapters later, they're nailing Jesus to a cross. You think that just because you go to church and you know how to put a tie around your neck or a pretty dress on or a skirt on or a nice set of clothes on and come to church, that somehow makes you better than the rest of society. My friend, if you're lifted up in pride, whether or not you attend church once a week or three times a week, if Satan can reach in there and get hold of that pride and use it to divide a church, trust me, he will. He will. You remember Achan? You remember how Achan stole that which was the Lord's and buried it in his tent, in his tent and, 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 and his wife and kids helped him with a cover up and 30, what, 36 or 38 men died in the next battle they fought? The sin of Achan. The sin of Achan hurt so many others. Letter B, talking about the resistance within the church. Notice letter B. Sowed discord. Sowed discord. We looked at sin and selfishness. Let's look at sowed discord. Verse 25. Verse 25 says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that, that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. In the Old Testament, we looked at Proverbs chapter 6 with the proud look. The very last thing on the list that God hates are those that sow discord among the brethren. And Satan wants us to go to uh, get into a civil war here at White Oak Baptist Church. He wants us to pick sides and choose teams and attack each other. You say, well, pastor, surely that wouldn't happen in our church. And boy, trust me, I spend a lot of time on my knees praying and asking God to give us unity. I believe there are two things that must take place in a church for a church to have revival. And the first one is unity. If we don't have unity with each other, if we're backbiting and we're picking on and we're hurting each other and we're, we're, we're flinging insults at each other, we're getting online and using social Social media is a platform to tear down the program of the church or tear down the people of the church and take slights at each other. And listen, it doesn't have to be public uh, in a public forum. It can be through text message. Well, I sure didn't like what sister such and such was wearing. I sure don't like the way brother such and such does something. Or I don't like the way the deacons handle this or the way the pastor handles that. You say, well, nobody knows other than me and that person. My friend, God knows and God sees the discord that's being sowed and you're hurting the church from moving forward for the Lord. Sowed discord. Unity is a must for a church to have revival. I said there were two there were two elements to revival in the church. The first one is unity. The second one is godliness. I see a bunch of people who are unified but they're not unified for a godly cause. By the way, have you noticed what people in unity are capable of for both good and evil? Have you seen what people who hate God will do when they unify their force together to attack something, how powerful that is? Boy, you inject that with a heart of godliness. 
What if all the people from White Oak Baptist Church, instead of belittling and attacking each other, what if they just loved each other and went to each other when there was a disagreement and they handled things like Christian mature adults ought to do, and you couple that with those same people, everybody who goes to White Oak Baptist Church, getting on their knees every day and reading their Bible and praying and having a walk with God and exercising the fundamentals of Christianity. Can you imagine what would happen at this church if we all behaved in that manner? I think today we need to look and ask ourselves this question. Is Satan using me to start a civil war within my church? Is Satan trying to claw his way, put his foot in the door, and using an offense in my life or hurt in my life in order to hurt the church? The resistance against the church, sin and selfishness, sowed discord. Let her see, notice, Satan, Satan. Uh, make no mistake about it, Satan hates the church. Satan hates the church. He He will do everything he can to tear down any church. And when a church closes its doors, when a church ceases to preach the gospel, when a church ceases to reach the lost, when the church ceases ceases to follow through on the fundamentals that the church was given here, for Satan hangs a trophy on his proverbial wall and he says, that's another church I've shut down. That's another church I've turned apostate. That's another church that's not preaching the truth. That's another church that's not edifying people. That's another church where things aren't going well. Satan is in the business of shutting down churches and Satan wants White Oak Baptist Church. 1 Peter 5.8 says be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil, there's Satan right there, see? Trying to interrupt our service. Because your adversary the devil walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I think in the passage in Ephesians 6 that talks about putting on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand the wiles or the fiery darts of the devil. You know what I picture? I picture Satan. He's got his fiery darts and he's got his bow. And maybe not him, but one of his legions. And they've been assigned to White Oak Baptist Church. And you know what they do? They peruse the pews. They peruse the church and they look for a disgruntled person. They look for someone who has a tough time in their life. And he holds back with that fiery dart, and he fires it right in there. And he says, I think I can start a problem right there. Right there. You know what? We're all capable of it. From the pastor, to the deacons, to those that teach at 945, all the way down. We're all capable of it. Satan can get in with any of us. You say, well, I just started attending here. Or maybe this is my first week, my second week. You know what? Satan can use you, if you're not careful, to hurt the church. The resistance within the church, or rather against the church. Number three, notice the restitution within the church. The restitution within the church. Letter A, notice, expect offenses. Expect offenses. We're going to finish the message. Much of the rest of our reading today will be in Galatians. If you can just turn over one book to the left for me into Galatians. Actually, it should just be a page or two. Galatians, look with me at chapter 6. And look at verse number 1. Look there. It says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. Now, I'm not going to correct the Bible. Because I believe the Bible is perfect. Every jot, every tittle. You know how this verse could have been written? Brethren, when a man be overtaken in a fault. Because can I tell you something that's a certainty? Offenses happen. 
Okay, I want everybody to participate here. If you don't participate, um, uh, that must mean that you're in a food coma and you're sleeping, okay? Um, how many of you here are a sinner? Would you raise your hand if you're a sinner? You know what that means? You're going to offend somebody at some point. You know what we have at Wadu Baptist Church? We have a bunch of offending sinners. That's from the guy that has the microphone right now to the person who just walked in the door the first day. Can I tell you how you ought to handle folks who do wrong? You ought to expect them to do wrong. You ought to expect offenses. You know, Angela and I learned in our marriage a long time ago, and I'm going to use this as a small example, and I believe this applies corporately to our church. Angela and I learned a long time ago that I am going to offend her, and she is going to offend me. And so instead of being shocked when one of us offends the other, we've instead learned how to handle it when an offense comes. I'm not expecting Angela to be perfect, because I know that she isn't perfect. Angela does not expect me to be perfect. Sometimes I get home, and I take off my socks, and I leave them on the living room floor. And you know what? She leaves them there for about a week until I finally pick them up. Sometimes I say things that cut. Sometimes there's a double standard within me. I tell her to do something and I do the opposite. I don't think anybody's shocked by that. Sometimes she'll say something and she's having a bad day that hurts my feelings. It was a happy day in our home, happy day in our marriage, when instead of being shocked at offenses, we began to expect them began to expect them. Letter B, again we're talking about the restitution. Notice, extend grace. Expect offenses. Extend grace. Look Look back at Galatians 6 and look back at verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What does he say here? He says, if someone within the body, the church of Galatia, is caught up in sin, sin that offends and hurts, here's the formula. You're to go to them in a spirit of meekness. You're to be prayed up. And you are to help them. You are to love them. You're not to come down as judgmental on them. You're to extend grace. Restitution within the church. I'm going to tell you something about me. And this isn't just about me. I think this applies to everybody. What I have noticed about churches, and I don't think it's just... Baptist churches. I think it's churches as a whole. I think this is especially true within the Catholic Church. 
What I have noticed with churches is that people think the man who opens up the book and preaches, he is far superior spiritually to everybody else. And we, we put the pastor or the church leader up on a pedestal. And we expect him to and think he just does live a life that's more holy than everybody else. Now, the pastor ought to be mature in the Lord. He ought not be a novice. He, he ought to have a lot of things figured out spiritually. There ought to be a cleaned up sober lifestyle about him. He ought not be after filthy lucre and all the other things in Timothy that lay out how uh, the qualifications of a pastor. But can I just say something to all of you here? I'm just as much of a man as every other man in the room. I'm just as much of a sinner as the next person in the room. And the truth is that if you put me under a microscope, you can find a lot of things about me that are just not quite right. You put me under a microscope, you can find that there are double standards in my life. There there are probably some hypocrisies in my life. I don't deny that. In fact, when it's revealed to me, I try to correct it and fix it. Can I ask you a question? If we put your life under a microscope, would you be much better than me? Now, I know how I am. When I do wrong, I want you to extend grace to me. How many of you, when you do wrong, you want people to extend grace to you? Would you raise your hand if that's where you're at with it? Then can I ask you a favor? When other people do wrong, can you extend grace to them? Can you be quick to forgive? In Proverbs chapter 3, the Bible says about mercy and truth, it says, Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. You know how that works? You bind truth around your neck. You give mercy to others and you apply truth to yourself. If you'll be hard on yourself and merciful to everyone else, oh boy, what you'll find is quick restitution. By the way, turn over just a a page in Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Page or 2, depending on how your Bible is laid out. Look at verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, this is Paul speaking, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Wow. Peter's one of the greatest Christians in the New Testament. Even Peter had some hypocrisies. Even Peter had some double standards. Even Peter wasn't the perfect preacher, apostle, minister. You know what Peter needed Paul to do? To correct him and show him grace. And Peter and Paul would be buddies well past this passage. But you know what Peter's problem was in this passage? Peter was being a little judgmental toward other people who were not the same skin color as him. He was a Jew and they were Gentiles and he wouldn't have anything to do with the Gentiles at dinner time. Peter got, Paul got in Peter's face. Even Peter, the great Peter, was far from a perfect minister. And here... Paul had to to correct Peter and then show him grace. Extend grace. Go back over with me to Ephesians 4. Maybe you already know it. If you know it, don't worry about turning over there. But verse 32. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted. Hey, I I hope I have your attention this afternoon. 
It's easy to be kind to someone who's kind to you. Anybody can do that. I could go find some jailbird who's been a horrible person his whole life. And can I tell you something about him? He's probably kind to people that are kind to him, even in jail. This verse about being kind to each other has little to do with those that are kind to you. You're to be kind to those who you feel have been unkind to you. Tender-hearted. You know what that means? When offenses come, you don't toughen up your heart and tense up your heart and say, and say, I'll never be nice to that person again. No, you maintain a heart that's tender. Let me just speak to the church leaders for a minute. If you're a church leader and you're here, here's what I believe. I believe that God has called you as a church leader to love. To love, help the pastor love the church. Can I tell you something about people? People are going to step on you. People are going to attack you. People are going to take advantage of you and they are going to hurt you. They're at times going to manipulate you out of money and out of time. You cannot become embittered. You cannot become hateful. You cannot become angry. You must learn to love those who are hard to love. You must learn to extend grace. Letter C, notice, we looked at expect offenses. Letter B was extend grace. Letter C, excuses for others. Excuses for others. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and look at verse number 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says there, doth not, speaking of charity, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, those last three words, thinketh no evil. Thinketh no evil. Something I want to just stand on the rooftops and praise my wife for is that if I come home in a bad mood or I say something that's sharp or curt or strong, my wife is really good about making excuses for my behavior. She'll say, well, he's under a lot of stress. He's under a lot of pressure. By the way, I'm using this. This doesn't happen very often, okay? We have a really strong marriage. But I'm just, as an example, being transparent with you here. Um, when I am not just Mr. Wonderful as a husband, I have a wife who's good at saying, there's a reason for this, and I'm going to give him some room to figure it out. You know how to make excuses for people? You know what we're really good at? We're really good at making excuses for our own behavior. Well, I know I was late into my, you know, life group, but I had a lot going on this morning. Okay, traffic was bad. Okay. We come up with a hundred excuses. Well, I know I didn't get that report turned in at work on time, but, you know, I, uh, the boss gave me too much to do. I was overloaded. We have a thousands, thousands of excuses you know what human beings are? They're expert excuse makers when it comes to themselves. Here's what I'm asking you to do. That fine skill that you have developed in defending yourself about how and why and, 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 and making excuses, can you learn to use that for other people that blow it? Can you learn to say, you know what, sister such and such didn't shake my hand this morning at church and she even scowled at me. And you say, I wonder what's going on in her heart at home. 
We are filled with a society of narcissists. What do I mean? We assume that every time someone mistreats us, it has to be something that I did. Did you ever stop and think that maybe it has nothing to do with you? Maybe there are things that happen in life that have nothing to do with you? Maybe, maybe they weren't nice to you because they're just having a bad day and it has nothing to do with you. We ever stop and think about that? Make excuses for others. Someone behaves in a way that you don't think is appropriate. Someone handles something in a way that you feel like was bullish and wrong. Okay. Make excuses for others. Now, I'm not saying to uh, overtly overlook all sin and pretend as though it didn't happen. Ma'am, if your husband's running around on you, at some point you quit making excuses and you deal with it. All right, But I'm talking about the trifle things. I'm talking about the smaller things. I'm talking about making restitution when there's an offense. The Bible is very clear that when your brother or sister offends you, you're to leave a gift at the altar and go and restore yourself with such a one. You're not, to, you're not even to go uh, uh, get any sleep until that thing's taken care of. And so uh, 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 Satan wants to resist the church. We must determine that when offenses come, because they will, we will have restitution within the church. Lastly, number four, notice the revival of the church. The revival of the church. God is looking for uh, a church full of people who will march forward for him. Letter A, notice, saints who follow. Saints who follow. I want everyone, I know most of you haven't memorized, but do it anyway, please. Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18. Matthew 16 and verse number 18. I want to show you uh, a couple of verses here. We'll do a small Bible study uh, just on this saints who follow. And then uh, we're, we're, we'll wrap it up here shortly. Matthew 16 and look at verse number 18. It says, And I say unto thee, Jesus is speaking, that thou art Peter. And upon this rock, thou art Pedro, Petros, little rock, little stone. And upon this rock, Christ, the solid rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Saints who follow, who is our commander in chief as a church? The Lord Jesus Christ. Below this, I have written down the Lord of the church. Saints who follow the Lord of the church. He's the one that's supposed to give us our marching orders. The Lord. Why the Baptist Church is not about Richard Lejeune, nor was it about Michael Peslak, nor was it about Barry Brown. Those were men who stood in the place of the Lord and proclaimed His word for Him. This is His church. This is His church. And what I'm supposed to do as the pastor is get my marching orders from him and turn around and give it to the church. And we are supposed to follow him. There may come a day, I pray it doesn't happen. There may come a day where Satan is able to stick a fiery dart into me and sink me and embarrass me and hurt and, 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 uh, and hurt uh, uh, my reputation or tarnish me and pull down my character and destroy me. Can I tell you if that day ever comes, I pray, I pray it doesn't happen. But uh, like Paul said, uh, I, I, when I preach to others, that I, I keep my body in subjection and bring, uh, keep myself and bring her subjection, lest that when I preach to others, I myself might be a castaway. Paul was very aware that he could trip and fall and he could make a mess of his life, and Paul was concerned about that. And I have to tell you, there's a lot of concern in me that that could happen to me, that I would do something that would disqualify me from the pastorate. But let me just say right now that if I ever do something that disqualifies me from the pastorate, you should not have your fix, have your eyes fixed on me, following me. You should have your eyes fixed on. On the Lord. 
You can find your confidence somewhat in a man. You find your strength in the Lord. Your confidence might be shaken when a man falls, but your faith should not falter. God has called us to follow the Lord. Saints who follow the Lord of the church, saints who follow the leadership of the church. Turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and look with me at verse number 1. The church of Corinth was a, a rebel church, especially the, the, first, uh, uh, the first letter written to them. They were at that time a really rebellious church, and they didn't have any organization, any structure. Uh, they, uh, they had all sorts of crazy doctrines, and things had just gone awry. And so Paul is trying to bring things back in order. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. He says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Let me illustrate this. If I could, let's see here. Brother Var, if I get your help, and Brother Eric, if I get your help, you try to sit in the back to get away from being used, I'm going to use you anyway. Okay. Uh, you two guys come here. All right. Eric's going to represent the church body of White Oak Baptist Church. Okay. Brother Var is going to represent the Lord. Okay. And the Lord is the one that leads the church, and, and I'm going to represent myself as the pastor. Now, um, I am supposed to get on, face here, I'm supposed to get on my knees, and, and I do, and pray and ask God to give me wisdom on how to lead the church forward in reaching the community. And you go throughout the Bible, and God has chosen the pastor or elder or bishop, all three titles describe the same person, to lead the church forward. And that pastor is to be on his face, communicating with the Lord, working with the Spirit of the Lord, and the church is to get in behind the pastor and follow. Now, I want you ultimately to follow him. So as long as I'm following him, you follow me. If I ever stop following him, you just keep following him, okay? All right, lead the way there. Just, just take us around the auditorium here. Walk fast. All right, so we're walking. We're walking. Eric, who are you following? You. All right, and who am I following? You see how that works? You see how that works? Now, as long as I'm following the Lord... Boy, the church is supposed to get in behind and follow the pastor. You men can be seated. Thank you. Paul said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. I heard someone say this recently, and I thought it was good, and so I thought I'd mention it here. If the pastor is not doing something illegal, immoral, or unbiblical, you ought to follow him on it. Let me say that again. If the pastor is not doing something illegal, immoral, or unbiblical... You ought to just get in and follow him on it. And trust that God is giving you your leader and that he's walking with the Lord. You say, well, that's not how I would have done it. Well, you're not the pastor. Get in and follow. If it's not illegal, immoral, or unbiblical, then just get in and follow. You know what that is? That's church unity. That's church unity. Because there are a hundred chiefs that can stand up and say, we should do it this way, and we should do it this way, and we should do it this way. And God said, look, if you have a leader and you follow the leader and he's following Christ, then boy, you can really accomplish something great. We're talking about revival within the church. We're going to be talking about those who follow. 
And we're to follow the Lord. We're not to question the Lord's leadership. We're not to question the leadership of the church. Now, deacons in the Bible were not given the role of advisory board to the pastor. That's been something that the Baptist movement has developed, and probably some other Protestant churches have that. And at our church, we do allow Brother Okai, Brother Syrett, and Brother Owens, our three deacons, to advise the pastor. And I'm thankful for them. They're men filled with wisdom. I call and talk to them often about things within the church and and, uh, get their uh, input and their advice and their wisdom. And I'm thankful for that, but that isn't necessarily a biblical role. Their role is to lead and uh, through serving, lead through serving and taking care of the needs. And I'm very thankful uh, that they do that, but they're part of the leadership of our church and we're to get in behind them and we're to follow them as they follow the Lord. Saints who follow, we're talking about revival within the church. As long as there is a faction of the church that is not going to follow the Lord or the leader that uh, chosen by the people who is following the Lord, there will not be revival in the church. Let me say that again. As long as the people are not going to follow the Lord and the leader that's following the Lord, as long as there's a faction of the people that are doing that, there will not be revival in the church. Saints who follow. Notice letter B. Saints who forgive. Saints who forgive. Ephesians 4.32 And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The hardest thing in the Christian life is forgiving someone who has hurt you deeply. It's hard. Not only are we commanded to forgive them, we're commanded to love them. The Bible says, Blessed are you, and men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for so persecuted were the prophets that were before you. Matthew 5, 44, that same passage, just a few verses later, says, Love ye your enemies. Love ye your enemies. How can a Christian forgive someone who's wronged him so deeply, has hurt him so deeply? You do that by looking at the cross and saying, I'm going to forgive because Christ has forgiven me. You know... um, we're not going to be able to go and grow and reach the lost and, 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 and help those in need and fulfill those, uh, the, the, the reasons for the church that we mentioned a few minutes ago. We're not going to be able to do that if we're constantly bickering and fighting with each other. We must learn how to forgive. We must learn how to look one another in the eye and say, if you've confessed it to the Lord and He's forgiven you, then I have no right to hold it over your head. When I have to discipline my children at home, they'll both be able to verify after the service that what I'm telling you is true. I take them in their room and I punish them. The very last thing I do with them when they have done wrong is we get on our knees and we pray together. And then we stand up and I look at them in the eye and I say, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then I'll look Matthew or April in the eye and I say, did you confess your sins? And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, has God forgiven you? And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, well, if God has forgiven you, then I forgive you. Hey, that would be a great formula to follow with each other, wouldn't it? Hey, did you confess that to the Lord? Yeah, you hurt me. Did you confess that to the Lord? Yes. Did He forgive you? Yes. Well, if God has forgiven you, who am I to hold a grudge against you? I forgive you too. 
saints who forgive. You know, if you're not willing to forgive others who've wronged you, you're not growing in the Lord. You're just not. Now, I look around the room, and in my three years of being a pastor, I've had some really tough conversations with many of you in here. There have been points in the three years where I've had to confront you or you've had to confront me over something I didn't like in you or you didn't like in me. And if we allow those things to fester, and that's just between me and some of you. That's not even between you and others in the church that I don't even know about. You allow those offenses to fester, I promise you it's going to... It's going to tear you apart because you're working against the Lord. You cannot have a church revival if you have church saints who won't forgive. Saints who follow. Saints who forgive. Lastly, let her see saints who are faithful. Saints who are faithful. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And let's finish here. 2 Timothy 4, last passage we'll look at today. Paul is writing the last verses that he'll pen, the last letter before he is taken and executed. Look at verse 9. He's speaking to Timothy here. He says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Look at verse 10. What a sad verse. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Hey, you know what happened with Mark, right? He quit, went home. I've heard people call him a mama's boy. Maybe a little bit of truth there. I don't know why he quit and went home, but he quit and went home. And then it was time for him and Bar- Paul and Barnabas to go out again. And Paul said, Mark's a mama's boy. We're not taking him. And Barnabas said, no, he's got to figure it out. He's going to do good this time. And they had a big rift over it. Well, you know what Mark, John Mark did? He buckled down and he got himself right and he became faithful. Demas took the other path. Demas, you find his name throughout the, uh, the, the, the New Testament letters. In most cases, he's spoken of in a positive light. But right at the end of Paul's life, Demas took a hard left and decided to love the world and forsake the church. Now, Christian, we can't have revival If we're not faithful to the Lord. And while I am talking about faithful to church services, I'm talking about so much more than faithful to church services. There ought to be times in your life where three, four, five, six months straight, you haven't missed a day reading your Bible. That's faithful. That's just being faithful. Three, four, five, six months straight, you haven't missed a day in prayer. Three, four, five, six months straight, when the Lord has brought someone to your heart that needs to be prayed for, you've dropped your head and prayed for that person every time. Three, four, five, six months straight, where you've texted someone or called someone or written a note to someone who is having a tough time. Every time the Spirit of the Lord moved, you did it. You know what? A church that has revival, it's built on good habits, it's built on good practices, and it's built on people who are not here for three months and gone for six months and then back for four months and gone for two months and then back for five months and then gone for three more months. There are people who week in and week out love the Lord, follow the Bible, and do right and say, I'm going to be faithful. A church that has revival is built on people who are faithful. Now, I've laid out the case this afternoon that the church is the answer to the world's problems. I've also laid out the case to you that Satan wants nothing more than to tear this apart. And he wants to do it from within. He wants nothing more than to tear us apart from within. 
I've also given you a formula on how to settle offenses with others and how to have revival. The question this afternoon is this. Are you going to choose to be part of a church that grows and goes? Or are you going to choose to be part of the resistance against the church? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Lord, will you not revive us again? David said, I was revived once. I was revived twice. But I need to be revived again. Lord, time after time in the 40 years of this church's life, you have revived us again. Lord, I have no doubt you want to do great things here. Help us, Lord, to love each other. Yes, when it's easy, but also when it's hard. Help us to forgive each other. Yes, over the little offenses, but also over the big offenses. Help us, Lord, to lead each other as we follow you. Lord, do a great and mighty work at White Oak Baptist Church. In Jesus' name we pray.